Last Lord's Day, we commenced a short mini-series with you, we'll call it like that, uh, on the biblical pictures or metaphors which are used to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we look at the church of Christ because there's so much of modern-day Christianity that emphasizes the individual and that does not emphasize the individual as part of the collective uh, being part of the church of Christ. Your individuality and mine does not trump the importance of the church collectively. In the study of theology, it's called ecclesiology. Lloyd-Jones, in his great doctrinal series, and I commend it to you, it's one of the first books I ever got. He summarized the meaning of the word in Scripture simply as a local gathering of saints where the presence and lordship of Christ is recognized. That was why when we opened this new building, we put this text up, a, up at the very back of the pulpit. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. A church is a local gathering of saints where the presence and the lordship of Christ is recognized. But over and above that in local churches, all those who are truly born again and spiritual are also members of the unseen spiritual church, the true body of Christ. Can I remind you once again that you cannot be a Christian without being a member of the church that is spiritual and invisible. That's an impossibility for all Christians are members of the true body of Christ. But you can be a member of the church without being a member of the visible part of the church, even though scripture commands that you should be. And it's sadly possible that you can be a member of the visible church, be received in, welcomed in at the Lord's table, and yet truly not be a member of the invisible body. So in our opening message last week in this little series, we considered the church from the perspective of Paul's analogy of the body of Christ, primarily from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And today we come to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ. So before we go into the actual details of the passage again, let's just pause for prayer and ask the Lord's help and ask the Lord's enablement. Father in heaven, we thank thee today for the public reading of God's word. And we thank thee for this wonderful picture set before us in Ephesians 5 of, of the church as the bride of Christ. And Lord, today we pray that thou will teach us uh, of thy love and mercy toward us as the bride, and that thou will teach us what it is to walk with the heavenly bridegroom and to serve him. I ask today for that unction that is from on high. I thank thee that the Bible tells us that we have received an unction. And I pray that the unction of the Spirit of God will be poured out, not only upon speaker, but upon hearer alike. That the Lord might search our hearts and bless our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This picture that's painted to us in Ephesians chapter 5 of the church as the bride and Christ as the bridegroom, it's taken as with so much in the New Testament from the Old Testament scriptures. I think it's important that we recognize that. You can trace this back to 
Ezekiel chapter 16. You needn't go there, but Ezekiel chapter 16 describes the day when Israel, like a baby, was found discarded at the side of the road, just newborn. And in mercy, the Lord stopped with this newborn, and the Lord gave the newborn life. Later on down the chapter, the, the metaphor has changed, and Israel is no longer the infant, the babe, the, the, the one that's found at the side of the road, but that has been translated into the young woman that is of marriageable age. And so the Lord took her to be his bride. And the whole chapter is one of the longest in the book of Ezekiel. It tells us not only about the, the child that was found at the side of the road that matured, because the Lord took her in grace and matured into the young woman of marriageable age. But it also tells us how that same young woman was unfaithful and committed adultery. And yet the Lord remained faithful to her. Even though we are unfaithful, the Lord remains faithful to us. What a challenge all of that is. And at the end of that long Chapter Ezekiel 16, it says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth. It's a humbling thought to think that God has a covenant with Christ, with his church. And that covenant will never be broken. And here we have in Ephesians chapter 5, the, the picture of a faithful God in covenant with his people, his bride, and all of this wonderful picture comes into fulfillment here in Ephesians chapter 5. This is taken, Ephesians 5 is taken from Genesis chapter 2, from the original creation, when God created man, male and female. It's good to go over all of those basic fundamentals in this confusing day and age that we live in, and to teach our young people proper human biology. God created man, male and female. And he brought a man and a woman together in matrimony. And that marriage in Eden is intended uh, not only to be the pattern but it, uh, for mankind, but it was a picture, a wonderful picture uh, between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. Because Christ is the bridegroom, his people are the bride. And here we're reminded of this wonderful relationship of Christ and his church. And if we can learn again from this relationship of Christ and his church, I believe collectively it will enable us to serve him better. I've said in the, the members class prior to this service this morning, we're always reforming. It's no use saying, oh, we're reformed uh, church, we're reformed people. We are always to be reforming. And where we see things in our lives that need to be clipped and tweaked and changed and repented of, then we need to reform what we're doing. And I believe in the church again today, we need to keep reforming. We need to keep examining how as the bride of Christ we serve the heavenly bridegroom. What practical lessons then can we draw that can be applied collectively, individually to the church today? Well, this is old ground for us here in Annalone, but I'm going to go over it again because that's how we all learn, line upon line, precept upon precept. First of all, we learn about the submission of the bride to Christ. People don't like to talk about 
this aspect today. But the analogy that Paul makes between the relationship of Christ and the church is taken from the, the bride and the bridegroom. And we read uh, in verse 21, Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now this, this verse 21 remembers in the context of verse 18 uh, to verse 20. Uh, and that's the context for it. And then in verse 22, 24 he proceeds from the general to the particular. And in these verses there's an injunction, there's a directive and it's given uh, to the wives. And... The, the wife is to be in submission to her husband, but it's embedded in this verse 21 where we're to be in submission one to the other. Paul gives to us the foremost motive for this submission. It is to be as unto the Lord. Wives, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. And then verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, as we've often said, the submission of the believer to Christ is absolute. We're born slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the type of submission that's spoken of in verse 22. A wife is not the slave of her husband. It never was meant to be. And the directive of verse 22 does not cover such a scenario. Wives are called to submit unto their own husbands, not to somebody else's, but to their own husbands. And as doing it for the Lord himself. And I think this whole, this whole concept, it, it lifts it, doesn't it? It lifts it from the, the ordinary into the extraordinary. And when the ungodly say, you know, why do you show such submission and, and uh, respect and reverence to your husband? Well, the Christian woman can say because of Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. There are other subsidiary reasons, of course, that are given here as to why the wife should be in submission to her husband. Because verse 23 tells us the husband is the head of the wife. We're going back to the order of creation. And Paul laid great stress on those foundational creative principles. Man was first created, then woman. And God so designed Eve as Adam's wife to be and help meet for him. Adam was Lord of creation and to him was given that dominion status. And he was created to take decisions and to give directions within the marriage. And he was created to uh, be the one who will disciple his wife and his children. And sadly today there are many men and they have offloaded all of that upon their wives. But men you can't do that. Because God gave to you the dominion status. Your wife doesn't want it. God gave it to you. You have the responsibility to direct the home. You have the responsibility to discipline the home. You have the responsibility to lead the home. Nobody else. A secondary reason is given here. In verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I think that's an amazing statement in and of itself. Christ is the head of the church. It does not absolutely say all that we need to say. 
You know, you can, I've been in meetings and people have sang those choruses over and over again. He is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. And they go out of the meeting and they do the exact opposite as what the Lord says. And they live in a manner as if there's no lordship of Christ. But if Christ is the head and he is the head of the church, then everything that happens in the church is under his headship. We go where he sends. We do what he says. We refrain from what he prohibits. Practically speaking, if Christ is the head of the church, it teaches us the church is his, it's not ours. Sometimes people say, this is our church. You know, it's not your church, it's not my church. On alone, free Presbyterian church is not my church. It's Christ's church. And he's the head of it. And we're to be in submission to him. Secondly, we see here something about the sacrificial love of Christ to his church. Verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The dominant characteristic in this relationship is love. It's not fear, it's not servile fear, it's love. The wife submits to her husband's lordship and leadership but it's all done out of love. It's not done out of dictatorship. It's not done out of tyranny. I, I, I pity the dear woman who has to live in a home where it's a dictatorship or where, it's a, where, it isn't, where she is a, a subject of tyranny. If a man expects his lordship, his leadership to be respected and uh, followed through, then the whole relationship has to be exercised in love, in love. That's the relationship of Christ to his church. And that's the biblical safeguard between these two commands. Verse 22, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives are not to live their lives in fear and dread of their husbands. They're not. The man who physically lays his hand upon his wife he's not a man he's not representing Christ he's not representing the church husbands are to love as God loves and that's the highest form of love Paul elaborates upon this we're taught in verse 25 about Christ's love toward his church. You know, doctrine and practice always go together. That's why I love the catechism, because we're taught about doctrine. First of all, then we're taught about practice. And you'll never know how to behave until you know what you should believe. And the principle which should control our relationship in the home, in the church, should be love. And the relationship between the members in the church and the head of the church should reflect Ephesians chapter 5. The relationship between husband and wife should reflect chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Christ is the husband of the church. That's a big statement, isn't it? He's the husband of every believer. You don't have to be married to be able to say that. He's the husband of every believer. We are spiritually, we are mystically married to him. And despite our faults, despite our unworthiness, just like Ezekiel chapter 16, where 
the one who had been taken, who had been found at the side of the road, and who had been weared and become unfaithful at the end of the chapter, God said his covenant was an everlasting covenant with her. He would not cast her off. In spite of all her deficiencies, he still loved her. And I'm glad Christ still loves the church. He loved the church on the cross of Calvary when the Lord Jesus gave his all. When we remember this table today, we remember that Christ loved the church collectively. Oh yes, he died individually for us. He, he died for me as an individual, but he was dying for the body. He was dying for the elect. But it wasn't just on Calvary that he loved the church. He still loves the church. That's a wonderful truth to reiterate. He loves the church. Though she is full of imperfections, he still loves this church. His invisible body. Many men are, are, are quick to criticize their wives. In, in front of others, I think that's an inexcusable thing. Sometimes that's done in jest. I, I, I know that. But none of us like our faults to be paraded in front of all. Some people think, oh, if only my wife could be this or that or the other, or inversely, if only my husband could be this or that or the other, then I could love him or I could love her more perfectly. But that's not the way Christ loves the church. He loves us the way we are. Christ loved the church so much he gave himself to save her. This is love in action. This is sacrificial love. In our minds today, we'll go back to the cross of Calvary. We think of that body that was broken. We think of the burden that that body bore on Calvary's center cross. We think of the blood that was shed from his body that is for the remission of sins. We we remember all of that in the bread that we partake of, in the wine that we partake of at the table today. He, he loved her so much that he gave himself for her because he desired her, verse 26, verse 28, to be a glorious church. A glorious church. He wants her to be admired. He wants her uh, to be honored. And of course, the beauty of the church reflects the wisdom and the grace of God. Whether you're married or single, you're in a relationship. If you're a Christian, you're in a relationship with Christ. An everlasting relationship is based on the unchanging love of God toward us. The love of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were saying, sharing this morning... Somebody sent me last night pictures of 30 years ago when the meeting house in, in Carrickfergus was opened. And I looked and I said, is that really Ian Harris in those pictures? Uh, yes, it is. How he's changed. But The relationship that we have with Christ is unchanging. You and I change. Sometimes nearly hour to hour we change. In our, in our moods, in our swings, in our, in our attitudes. But his love toward us is unchanging. 
Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ, verse 5, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, how amazing that Christ did all of this for us. Why did he suffer? Why did he bleed? Why did he die? Because he loved the church. And I'm glad today he still loves the church. And will love her for all eternity. Three, let's think for a moment or two about the sanctification of the bride. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. This word sanctification, as we've been learning, it means to be set aside. Set aside for holy purposes. Uh, and Christ set aside the, the church for holy purposes. Christ died to make the church holy. He died to make the church clean. He died to make the church pure. And so what are all the lessons? Well, the primary lesson is that justification and, and adoption and sanctification, they're not all individual compartments, but they're part of the whole. They all go together. Uh, you cannot separate these experiences. If you say, I'm saved, well, then you have to be pressing onward with God and holiness. God has to be doing a work of sanctification in your heart and in your life. We read in Romans 8 and 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's the line of demarcation. The Christian no longer walks after the flesh. They walk after the Spirit. As Christians, we must never think it's enough when somebody just professes faith. It's lovely to see that, to hear that, and to hear testimony from it. But dear brethren and sisters, let us all learn afresh today. Christ died to make us holy. To sanctify us. Some Christians believe that sanctification is something they can decide to do. Uh, they put their hand up in a meeting, they come forward to the front and they pray and they, they rededicate, they, re, they recommit their lives to the Lord. It's not something that you suddenly decide to do. It's part of what Christ died to do for us. The Savior not only died to save his church, he died to sanctify his church. Holiness is so confused in this day and age that we live in and we're so so many mixed views on it and what it means, etc. But I want to underscore it again today. If you say Christ died for me, if you come to this table and partake of these emblems, and if you're a Christian, I hope you will, well then you're saying something very big. You're saying he also died to make me holy. Fourthly, look at the spiritual agency that he uses to cleanse the church. Well, how, how does he cleanse the church? What does he use? That he might sanctify and cleanse it, verse 26, with the washing of water by the word. This is the agency that he uses. Christ sanctifies and he cleanses. And again, we're going back to the Old Testament ceremonies of cleansing, <coughs> ceremonial cleansing. 
with the washing of the water by the word. The word cleanse carries with it the idea of purging away the guilt of sin. That was the, the, the purging, uh, the cleansing of the Old Testament ceremonies. And this idea is included now in the sacrifice of Christ for his church. And of course it has a wider uh, application and it has a wider significance. Paul adds that the cleansing is now carried forward and affected by the washing of the water of the word. And that's a continuing process. That's something that God not only started, but he continues to do. It's a continual process. The washing of the guilt is once and for all. That's a single action. But here we have continuing action. Verse 27 <clears throat> further expands upon, upon this thought that he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It is the purpose of God and grace that the church would not only be cleansed from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, but even from the pollution of sin. The fall has polluted our natures. We, we live in a polluted world. We live in a polluted environment. Within and without we're polluted. <coughs> we all, sometimes when the snow comes, we love to see the snow. It just covers all of the... The, the, all this underneath, you see the lovely sparkling white on the top, but then somebody lights their fire to keep them warm inside. And what happens? All the soot and all the, the stuff goes out of the chimney and it lands on the snow outside. It becomes polluted very quickly. We live in a, a, a fallen, corrupted, polluted world, and therefore we need constant cleansing from the pollution of sin. And how is all this accomplished? By the washing of the water of the word. I'll not take time to go there, but you'll find uh, in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8, to chapter 15, verse 13, this is symbolized in that Old Testament ceremonial cleansing uh, of, the, of the, those who had leprosy. <clears throat> but today in the New Testament, the agency which God uses to cleanse his church is the word. We sang about that in our opening psalm. The Holy Spirit sanctifies the church through the instrumentality of the word of God. And as believers grow in the knowledge of Christ, they should be progressively more and more becoming like Christ. More and more made unto his image. We should never separate the work of the Spirit of God from the instrumentality that God uses, which is the Word of God. It's not our inner light that sanctifies. Sometimes Christians go into all of this uh, sort of mystical mumbo-jumbo. It's the Holy Word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to do this work of cleansing. And that's why, dear brethren and sisters, you and I should be in that word every day. Every day in the word. Applying the word of God to our hearts and to our lives. Sometimes, when I was a boy, they sang that old song, Dust on the Bible. Why about the dust on the Bible? Because it's never lifted. You lifted your Bible today, was there dust on it? As you come out to church... 
because you'd never lifted it. Our sanctification is grounded. It is grounded and rooted in the word of God. Sanctification doesn't start off with the word of man. It starts off with the word of God. Now there are many so-called holiness preachers. And they'll give you a list of rules as we say in Ulster. The length of your arm. And if you do this and you do that and the other you're going to be holy. And it starts off with the word of man. And people have said to me. Well you should do that because reverend so and so or pastor so and so said such and such a thing. That's all you have to show for it. It's nothing. Is it the word of man or the word of God? Day by day, applying the word of God to our hearts and to our lives. And if we know that that applies within our own souls, it applies also within the relationships that we are in. Day by day, as we... Eh, give our lives to Christ and give our lives on to his word, our relationships become sweeter because now they're molded and shaped by the word of God. Could we conclude just by emphasizing to you the progressive nature of this sanctification, verse 27. That he may present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We're all marred by our sinful spots and wrinkles. Sometimes now when there, there are weddings being arranged, uh, it's factored in in the morning that the bride has to have her, her makeup time. Well, no doubt the men also will be having their makeup time up ahead. But you know, you can only cover over the outward blemishes and the outward wrinkles. You can't cover over the inward spots and wrinkles of sin within. What a loving, heavenly bridegroom he, we have who takes us unto himself despite the spots and despite the wrinkles. I imagine the young man, he's waiting at the front of the church and he sees his bride coming up the church and she's not arrayed gorgeously. And she hasn't put on the new dress. Maybe she's coming in from the field. Maybe she's just in her working clothes. She hasn't had time for that makeup time, etc. And he looks at her and he says, Really? Am I taking you on? The Lord Jesus, he looked at us. And he saw beyond what we are to what he's going to make us. And he takes us spots and wrinkles with all. He's working in us. I'm glad I can say today with assurance that I am a work that's not finished. If I was a work that finished, I wouldn't be before you and you wouldn't be sitting in those pews. God's not finished with us. He still has a work to do of sanctification in our life. It is progressive. There's application of that's very obvious. I want you to be patient with yourself. And I want you to be patient with others on the road to glory. 
Perhaps you, you sigh over your own lack of progress and you, you're, you're, you, you, you regret so many things in your life. Don't live your life in regret. You expect better things, perhaps, from others and, and quicker spiritual progress. Just remember the spots and the wrinkles. Be patient one with another. Don't judge harshly that young believer. Don't judge harshly that brother or sister. Maybe they're, they're battling with some addiction. Have you ever had an addiction? I don't think there's one in this meeting today who couldn't say they've had some sort of an addiction and they've battled with it over the years. Some people's addictions are just more obvious than others. Don't judge them. God hasn't finished with them. Patiently he works in them. Enabling them to die more and more unto sin and live unto righteousness. We need, we need to be reminded that the church is his bride. You and I would never have married the one that God chose. But it's his bride. And he's removing the spots. He's removing the wrinkles. And one day in Emmanuel's land, he is going to present that church, a glorious church. And it will not have a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing. And it will be holy on that day and without blemish. Isn't that wonderful prospect for every child of God? There's a day coming when we'll not have a spot or a wrinkle. I'm not talking about the physical ones. I'm talking about the spiritual ones. And in the glory of that glorified body, we could go further than that and say, we'll have no, we'll have no way blemishes either in that resurrected body that the Lord will give to us. Or any such thing. That covers everything, doesn't it? But we'll be holy. We will be holy. And without blemish. Let's take encouragement from this wonderful picture in our communion hymn today, the great Spurgeon said, Thou glorious bridegroom of our hearts, thy presence smile a heaven imparts. Oh, lift the veil, a veil there be. Let every saint thy beauties see. Let's unite our hearts, please.